This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. The best advice I'm able to give people, especially in hard times, is get a network, but the network doesn't have to be the same for every topic. So don't go ask more than five people. Make your network of folks that you are sourcing information of select, literally, you know, procure it per, per topic. And don't go and ask, you know, this huge community because you're going to spin yourself in circles. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to my newsletter at The Consumer VC, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Thank you, CJ Fowler at Goat Rodeo Capital for the introduction to our guest today, Melissa Facina, co-founder and co-managing partner of City Capital. City Capital is an operationally focused food and beverage growth equity firm. Their portfolio includes Midday Squares, Ourobora, both of which have been on the show, Copper Cow Coffee, Mudwater, Magic Spoon, and Momofuku Goods. I had a blast chatting with Melissa about her story, what makes great entrepreneurs in the food and beverage space, and the question of do great entrepreneurs have to be great operators, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Melissa. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Oh my God, I'm awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. I'm so happy we finally made it happen. This is great. Me too. For all those viewers who don't know, me and Mike like scheduled 17 times and like life got in the way every single time. And we're like, we absolutely have to make it happen. So here we are. Yeah. And big, big shout out to CJ for, uh, for introducing us. That, that, that was awesome. 100%. Yeah. 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 Huge, huge fan of him. Okay. So I want to start in our first chat, something you said many things interesting in our first chat, of course, but one thing that particularly I found quite fascinating was you said someone can be a great CEO, a great business manager, but at the same time might not actually be an operator. What did you mean by that? And how do you think about that distinction? Yeah, really good question. I mean, look, the core of uh, what I tend to focus on in the industry, the core of what city, city capital focuses on um, is everything around scalability right? We care a lot that products taste delicious. We care a lot that products have been innovated by founders who see some white space, have a passion for something and want to drive toward introducing a new product to consumers. We also see the flip side of that, which is they know what they want in their heart. They know what they want on their palate and they have no idea how to actually get there or what it means to make a change or an edit to a manufacturing partner, why cogs are important, why you have to care uh, about bottom line and making sure you, you have a pathway to strong bottom line or margin enhancement. And so, you know, I think I, I don't have a percentage of people in the space who are probably great entrepreneurs from the front end, but don't have solid back end expertise, but I think it's a majority. Uh, and so, you know, we look at operating a business in its entirety. We're not just talking about does somebody understand manufacturing or logistics or warehousing or procurement. We're talking about do they know how to read a PL? 
Can they even articulate to investors what their numbers mean and what levers they have to pull in their business uh, in order to enhance it? Do they understand what they need to do in their company to have it actually scale to material value? Um, that for me is what an operator is. And I think a lot of founders, one, can't afford to put operators in their businesses at early stage companies. Two, once they get past the point uh, of raising capital, you know, starting to get traction in the space, frankly, ego gets in the way uh, a handful of times. And they're concerned that somebody might not understand the brand power the way that they do. And so they're, 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 they're um, not so eager to put somebody in the driver's seat who really understands the fundamentals of the financials. And I think that's the end game for us is how do we pair really exceptional talent who we would define as operators, understanding the holistic nature of the business with folks who have that front end heart and passion and, and, and vision for what that white space was uh, and be able to continue uh, bringing new and innovative products to consumers. That's extremely well art articulated. Thank you so much, Melissa. Like, and that makes a lot of sense. Like, from a like, someone could be a great entrepreneur in that, as you say, like, see the white space, see where the opportunity is. Um, I'll also maybe be able to kind of um, uh, build the product or kind of um, uh, the first product and kind of understand, um, you know, uh, if it if it tastes great and like and and, and kind of really really see. Um, the opportunity, but at the same time, as you say, as the actual um, company scales, does your margin profile actually make sense? Like how, like, how, like does even like the pricing make sense or or reflect what it actually goes into when it comes to um um uh, 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 the the cost of the operation? So that's um that's that's a that's a great point. Well, I'll add something you know, perhaps even more tangible and relatable to people, which is as a as a front front end visionary founder, you're attracted to your product and have to be right. You have a ton of bias around it. You go and bring a product to market. You hear from one consumer, let's say that it's too salty. You hear from another consumer that, oh, my gosh, I don't get enough of the nacho flavor. Right. And now all of a sudden you're like, let me go back to the lab and iterate. I'm going to change it all and go back through product formulation because this one consumer said I needed to add more salt. And it's like, that's the heart and the passion and the vision for wanting to perfect a product. But holy cow, can you imagine the cost every time you want to go back and iterate? Uh, you're driving yourself crazy. You're 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 wasting tons of capital. You're driving your manufacturing partners crazy. But that's like that switch of being able to remove the passion of wanting everything to be perfect in your product and understanding that line of what it means to actually operate a business moving forward. That's such a small example, but I think it's tangible to so many founders who have that that care for their product. What was your start to CPG and and ops? Uh, mine was unique in the sense that um, I was 11 years old. My dad grew up uh, in, a, in, a, in a plant floor uh, as a plant manager. I was 11 years old and he purchased some bankrupt fluid milk dairies, um, ended up converting them into now what is the country's largest privately held juice manufacturing businesses. Uh, but that acquisition at 11 years old from him to go from employee to owner and operator uh, also landed me a job. Uh, on a factory floor at 11, hand palletizing yogurt containers. Um, I very quickly, whether it's genetic or environmentally exposed, not sure, a combination of both, very quickly fell in love with automation, very quickly fell in love with manufacturing, manufacturing lines, efficiencies of operations. Um, I love walking facility floors. Um, I, I, I stayed in our family business for the better part of the next two decades, it rapidly grew. I got an amazing opportunity to see what it meant to be one of the greatest manufacturers in the country. I got a great opportunity to see firsthand what it meant to be a private label supporter at retail. Um, I think I also saw commodity products, right? Orange, orange juice, apple juice, et cetera, uh, being driven to the mass market consumer, how quickly that volume uh, was able to be eaten up and I and and subsequent to that, started experiencing, you know, me living as an adult, caring about health, caring about what I was putting in my body, and realizing that those two were not living side by side. You know, high volume, cheap products 
were not really healthy. We were not able to provide uh, most of the country with affordably nutrient-dense foods. And that just didn't sit well with me. Um, so I left our family business for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the funny ones is that my dad is just unapologetically Italian, believes that women belong in the kitchen and not in the boardroom, not at all uh, jives with me. Um, but combining that with my passion of wanting to deliver good quality products to the mass market, it was my time to exit. Uh, back to the beginning of our conversation here, I realized pretty quickly that there were awesome entrepreneurs out there who had really fantastic ideas didn't know how to deliver them properly to the market uh, or get them to scale. And so I, I launched an operating firm. That operating firm uh, became known as City Ops. Very quickly grew into a premier outsourced operating partner. We've built over 400 CPG businesses. Uh, and we've got a team of 15 expert operators who do this day in and day out. And so my, my, my entrance was via family. Uh, I think I've, I've moved through that both in, you know, building trusting relationships with founders in the space, making sure they knew we were on their team uh, and helping to build businesses that were strong and foundational uh, and, and ultimately got an opportunity to shift that uh, into being part of private equity. Amazing. When you left the family business, why did you obviously start City Ops, which becomes incredibly successful? Why did you decide to start an operations company to, and actually help brands rather than actually launching your own brand? <laughs> you know, in all the interviews I've ever done, no one's ever asked me that before. I, first, I'll tell you, I was sure when I left our family business, I was going to do anything but be in food. Uh, I just had no idea what that was. Um, top of mind for me, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I guess it'll re re be, be relatable, was that I had to get into sales. Because all the people I knew who were making $100,000 a year or more were in sales. And that was my goal. How the hell can I make 100 grand a year? Then I'm successful. Uh, obviously, I didn't land myself in sales, although arguably I had to sell services. Um, what, what really happened was I realized, frankly, I wasn't qualified for anything else. This was uh, post-recession where companies were really um, fearful to hire weren't really sure what was going to happen financially. And I didn't have the skills on a resume to go and be hireable uh, in a variety of ways, frankly. What I had was a knowledge base of food and beverage manufacturing and operations. Uh, it got to the point where I had to figure out how to pay rent. Um, and I was having conversations in New York City with people who were selling products in farmers markets. Uh, and I was able to help them and they were willing to pay for that advice. And really, that's how that got started. Um, it wasn't about me not wanting to start a brand. I, I didn't have a, a, a product type. Like, I'm not a visionary, by the way. Uh, I mean, maybe I am in terms of pairing capital and operating infrastructure, but that, that's been done before, just not done a lot in our industry, um, but it's been done by all the large private equity shops. Um, I'm just not, I don't have that creative gene to have thought of the white space uh, of products that somebody would have wanted. And so really the truth is it was a necessity. I had to lean into skills I had in order to get rent paid. You kind of thought you were out and then they kind of pulled back in just with everything that was going on around with like the recession, everything like that. Um, and then also as well, given your experience in the family business, just you knew ops back and forth when it comes to when it came to CBG. So so why not leverage that experience and actually create your own um, operation service company? That's right. It added credibility uh, to me to come from that in a, in a way that I honestly didn't uh, didn't expect. Uh, really humbling uh, to have people value that type of knowledge and even as I've aged, I'll tell you the amount of information that I've somehow soaked up uh, just as an innate learning by being around the talk or the culture or the manufacturing speak. It's really shocking uh, the amount of information that you can soak up just by being in the environment. And I think I was surprising myself, frankly, uh, with some of the stuff that I was coming out with in terms of advice that, that, uh, that seemingly worked. I'd imagine with City Ops and as you're building it, you're engaging with companies in maybe different capacities. On the back end side um, of building a business, what were your like main skills at when it came to City Apps? Like what what is operations for for CBG? It falls in a variety of buckets. 
Um, the easiest way, I think, to break it down and how we break it down when we talk to folks is in two buckets. One is manufacturing. Manufacturing has two arms. It can have self-manufacturing, which is you're building your own facility and running your own facility, or it can have third-party contract manufacturing. And there's a variety of other things in there, right? Co-packing, co-man, tolling, et cetera. We don't need to break that down, but using someone else's resources to make your product. So that's manufacturing vertical. That's where a lot of my expertise fell. How to work with these manufacturing partners, how to spec equipment, understanding the throughput of a line, meaning how much product actually comes down a line, what you can expect to get from that, the yield, what kind of loss rate you have of the raw materials putting inside, et cetera. The second bucket, uh, which is an area I think people put more value in because it's in front of their face on a day-to-day basis. But frankly, if you don't have the manufacturing down, the rest of it doesn't matter. Um, And that's day-to-day operations. How do you order raw materials, order packaging, ultimately get it made into a finished good, whether it's, again, self-manufactured or co-manufactured, then what the hell do you do with the finished good once it comes out of the line, right? You got to put it in a box. You got to get that box on a pallet. You have to pack the pallet most efficiently for shipping. Who do you use for a shipping partner? Where do you send the product for warehousing? How do you get into a distributor? All of the stuff from getting a product fully made to getting it into a consumer's hands is dated what we would call day-to-day operations. So City Ops as a firm did both verticals uh, for businesses that were just starting pre-revenue to about 150 million. Got it. That's really helpful. When on like the, as you say, in the on the manufacturing side, either you are vertically integrated and own a plant and or or you use, you know, or you have co-manufacturers, when does it make sense to actually vertically integrate if you're a brand? It's a challenging question because it takes a lot of capital to vertically integrate. I still think there are a lot of investors who are terrified of the asset-heavy model. The truth is asset-heavy models ultimately drive margin uh, substantially faster. You can control the cost of your business significantly more by controlling pieces of it. Does that mean you have to control the manufacturing? Maybe not, but maybe you control the supply. Um, so there's there's a variety of ways that you can start to put vertical integration in place. Again, I don't have an exact percentage here. I'd be throwing a dart at a wall, but my guess is 90 to 95% of the emerging CPG or food and beverage space uses third-party manufacturing support. Depends on the product category, beverage as an example, you're probably not going to start your own facility because it is tens of millions of dollars to get those lines high functioning, high volume, and really at scale. But if you're making a sauce, you can buy vats and you know jarring machines for relatively cheap. And by relatively cheap, you know, uh, uh, let's say it's a million bucks, right? Now you're you're having some infrastructure uh, for a building. You can get into that space with a lot less cost. Does that mean you should do it? No. Um, we don't believe people should be running manufacturing unless they really understand the nuts and bolts of manufacturing. Um, and so there's a lot of pieces to that, right? There's a finance piece, which is significant. But aside from that, there's a safety piece. You can kill people with products that you're making. And so if you don't have a really keen understanding of food safety, quality, and security, you're pretty much going to end up with some substantial problems in the, in the facility and or financially in order to get the facility up to par. Um, So when does it make sense? It makes sense in a variety of fashions. One is you are, you are a true operator or manufacturer, or you can afford to hire the right team who understands it. Two, there's no other place to make the product and there's no line time available. Uh, in that place, you, 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 you've got two choices. One is you can think about building your own facility or you can think about a less costly option, which is buying uh, some CapEx to put on the floor of a co-manufacturing partner. That's always our preferred choice so that someone's not running a facility soup to nuts. Um, but there are some very big ambitions, like we are both food and beverage investors on the CPG side, but we're also food tech investors. And what I'm talking about in terms of food tech is not restaurant delivery. It's how to make novel products and ingredients for the future, right? How, to, how, how do we get bioidentical meat or dairy products uh, in the future without using a, a cow or an animal? 
precision fermentation, cellular agriculture. Those are all things that infrastructure does not exist for. So when those businesses go out and raise capital, they not only raise capital to make a product, but they raise capital to build a facility. And so they're raising 20, 50, $100 million or more in a clip uh, because they actually have to solve scaling problems. So it's an individual conversation per brand. By the time a brand comes in-house for us on the investing side, we have that conversation about vertical integration in a variety of places. We do try to get them some ownership of either CapEx uh, or a way that they can control volume and scale. Uh, but it, again, doesn't always have to be within the four, four walls of a facility they own. When you're on the investment side or, or also maybe on the, on, the, um, on the consulting services end, how do you identify if that, if that entrepreneur is a true operator or if they have the right team around them? So first, let me educate you that city ops and city capital are no longer two individual entities. Um, we combined the firms about a year ago. Uh, and so everyone lives underneath city capital now. Does that mean that the operating team only focuses on portfolio companies? No. About 75% of their time is focused on portfolio companies. 25% of their time is focused on outside business. But I will tell you on the investment side, which is where we pour a lot of our resources, um, we engage in a extraordinarily deep diligence dive. And so we have a dedicated diligence team. Uh, we look at a business for eight to 12 weeks at a depth that I've never seen any other investor look at. In fact, 44 other investing firms hire us to do their diligence uh, in order to invest in businesses. We put up 60 to 80 page reports on the operating natures of these companies, the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything about how the product gets made, how it gets sold, how it gets distributed, what their margins look like, what their future looks like, all the things that are in the way in order for them to be able to achieve the goals that they have in front of them. It becomes abundantly clear when you look at every vertical in a business and the way the P&L is operating, if that, in, uh, that founder and or management team can successfully operate that company. It also becomes abundantly clear if they understand the levers and the holes they have in the business based on what their plans are for how to get the business stronger or how to continue it growing. And so we always tell companies, frankly, don't hide anything from us. We don't care if you have the information or materials. We don't care if you don't know the information. Tell us that. Because if you don't, we're going to find it. And then all of a sudden, you'll look like you're hiding it. And now we've got a problem, right? We'd rather know where your weaknesses are so we can help plug them. How many times has that actually happened um, where you've actually found, you know, in your diligence process, what the entrepreneur maybe thinks that they know is actually not actually what they know? 60% of the time. Now, I will say the then judgment of character for our founders is how do you react to the information? The ones who say, holy cow, you know more about our business than we know about our business. That's amazing. Can you please help us figure out how to plug these holes and gaps? And can we utilize your team in order to figure out what we don't know to strengthen the company? That is an award-winning partnership between accepting city capital, uh, city's you know, financial dollars, as in capital from city, um, or uh, uh, the mark of what makes a very unsuccessful partnership if you have a founder who's fighting the information, who's trying to tell you that it's totally incorrect, who's trying to make all these excuses for it, who's trying to, um, uh, you know, kind of push you out of the knowledge so that you don't have such visibility to what's going on. Those are the red flags and the partnerships that we're not interested in having. Um, so, but, but the truth is every investment that we have that we're actively involved in, obviously the entrepreneurs either knew what they were doing and had strong businesses uh, or wanted to understand, grow and be supplemented uh, and get that support. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so it's not just, as, as you say, like it's not just if the entrepreneur knew or not, but it's also the reaction to, uh, uh, to knowing or not. And, um, and, and then seeing, um, uh, then if there is a type of partnership there, um, that's worth, um, that's worth pursuing or not. Yeah. I'll add something to that though, which is, you know, and I've been very vocal about this 
in the past. There's a lot of investors out there who don't do their own diligence, but think they understand businesses or do do their own diligence and, you know, might not be great diligence. But either way, they 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 aim to find problems with the businesses and then they aim to devalue them. And so if they go and put up a term sheet and the term sheet's worth 50 million pre, I'm just making something up. And they find these handful of problems. Now, all of a sudden, they're renegotiating for $35 million pre. And so these entrepreneurs are terrified. Um, many of them, when we get to them, are terrified, truly, to let us in their business and let us actually see what's going on under the hood because they're afraid they're going to be negatively judged for it. And so it takes us a lot of time. And that's where the trust, honestly, uh, comes in and, and, and where I spend a lot of my time is in, hey, look, I'm not looking to take the value away from your company. I'm not looking to overpay. OK, and you don't want me to overpay because next time you're going to have a down round if that's the case. But I am looking to fairly pay. I am not looking to judge you on what you know or don't know. I'm not looking to judge you on an imperfect business. I already know it's imperfect. Why? Because there's very little businesses out there that are totally perfect. So don't be afraid of that. The goal is not how can I trick the investor to believe I have a perfect company? The goal is let me make sure that I give the investor all the information I can so that this particular investor can actually help me solve the problems I'm facing. But I have to make sure they understand that we're not going to critique them for it. And that it, it, I'll be very honest with you, that's the hardest part uh, is the dance in getting the trust to be able to see what's really going on and knowing that we're not going to slam them for it. How also, so let's say you've you made an investment in a company and the company then, um, I know this is like a really tough period, obviously, just with with everything that happened in the economy, let's say that company is going through a bridge round or a down round, right? Um, how do you assess if that bridge round or, or down round maybe is understandable versus one that actually could have been avoided or or the company maybe was poorly managed? There's a lot of that going on right now, um, frankly. And, and it is my fundamental belief that Yes, there need to be stronger operators leading these companies. Uh, I've been very vocal about that. But the, but the industry has also changed very rapidly out from under the entrepreneurs who started these businesses two, three, and four years ago. And so they took on investment capital in a growth at all cost model where investors wanted to see three, four, five, six X top, top line growth year over year. No one cared about bottom line profitability. Everyone wanted to see innovation. Um, and so that's the model they built. Now, in the last year, investors and acquirers alike are throwing up their hands saying, no more growth at all costs. We are not dumping cash in a business for it just to be burned constantly. We expect bottom line expansion. But by the way, if you're not two or three Xing your top line growth, we don't want to talk to you because that means that you're not resonating with consumers. And it's like, no, no, you can't have it both ways right now. And so if you're re-educating the entrepreneur about the type of business they need to be building, you have to give them the time to change that model. So if they're going to move to a bottom line enhancement model, it's okay that the growth on the top line is a bit slower. While they're doing that, they're making edits to the bottom line. And what most people don't truly understand is P&L flow through for margin enhancements takes 12 to 18 months to actually materially flow through to the P&L. Do not expect to make subsequent changes in your operating infrastructure and have it be immediately financially impactful. So you have to give companies this time. And so it's so back to your actual question, it's really hard to judge. Were they misrunning the company or were they going by the model that people previously set for it, which was just spend, spend, spend? The only way to get there is to challenge the entrepreneur about changing the approach and seeing if they have the business acumen and the mental capacity to understand 
the change in that model and what they need to do in their business or accept what they need to do in their business to make that alteration. And by the way, not every entrepreneur can get there. And those who can't get there are ones that are likely not going to get funded uh, during this really challenging time. What that means as well, if you kind of do this kind of reassessment of your P&L and also like maybe look at your margin profile and um, just do an overall um, assessment of your operations, um, it might mean that you actually then might say, we're not going to go into this new sales channel, for example, and we're not going to accept this. We're going to focus on how can we get our margin, you know, maybe better, um, our business tighter, um, so that then it's actually in a position to actually scale That's right. properly. That's right. And honestly, one of the directions that we're giving our portfolio companies is let's look at every retail partnership uniquely. Let's understand if that partnership is profitable or not and what it costs to maintain that retailer and or that channel. If it's just sucking the business of money all the time, it might not be a worthwhile thing to do. And we need to throw it out the door right now. We only want to chase partnerships that enhance the business in one way or another, right? It's either going after a new consumer base and knowing you're investing in it. But now that line item is really a marketing expense, right? The loss on that retailer. You can't have losses everywhere. Do you want to take a shot at one retailer to go after new customer base? That's fine. But that's like one. You can't have 10 of those. The other nine need to be, you know, strong, uh, fi financially strong partnership to the business. How much time do you give it in terms of if if the retailer partner would actually be, um, if it actually is a profitable channel? Um, I think every channel is a little bit different in terms of promotion activity uh, and how many dollars you need to put in in order to get interest. I'll also tell you, we've seen some of the biggest retailers in the space, Walmart, Target, Publix, Kroger, take away uh, the need for these brands to market. If they really, really want them in the, in the store and on their floor, they're paying for that marketing activity. That immediately makes those retail dollars much more profitable because you're not having to promote your own business. You're having the retailer promote it for you. Those are really special products though, right? Ones that are hitting it out of the park. Uh, uh, we have a handful of them, fortunately, in our portfolio that these large retail giants are welcoming in and not charging any dollars for. Um, it's slightly erroneous though, because it looks like it's a profitable channel immediately. And once you have to start picking up those promo dollars at some point in time, it's going to cost more to hold that retailer afloat. Um, I think it's probably, uh, you know, a, and I'm not a sales expert. We have sales experts on our team. So I want to raise my hand at that, but you need to give it a good nine to 12 months to be inside the stores and fully stocked. By the way, there's many times you launch with retailers and it takes many, many months sometimes two quarters to get fully stocked across every store you're supposed to be in. So how could you possibly tell what your velocities are, what your consumer base is, what your repeat purchasing power is if you're not fully stocked? You can't. Uh, so you have to give all of that some time. No, that's a that's really great point. We talked a bit about, of course, you know, City Ops and kind of the origin story behind City Ops. Um, what's the origin story behind um, City Capital and why did you want to become an investor? Yeah. Um, so also a unique story. Um, the vast majority of my operating experience in city ops continued to tell the same story, which was people who know how to operate these businesses as service providers are getting their voices are getting put aside for those who are willing to write checks. And so if an investor is willing to come in and give you $5 million, and the investor tells you, you have to go do A, B, and C. Who are you going to listen to? The investor who's got $5 million or the service partner who you're paying money to? Are you able to give an example on maybe what an investor advice of $5 million maybe might not be well spent, for example, versus like what like a service provider would actually say? Well, sure. There are many that'll say, hey, we don't like your co-manufacturing uh, uh, pricing. So you need to go find a new co-manufacturing partner. Well, to move co-manufacturers, number one, is a massive endeavor. Two, if you have a great partner and bad pricing, you got to go fix the partner relationship and understand why you have bad pricing. There's a variety of reasons for that, right? You don't just pick up and try and go find a new co-manufacturing partner because you could be trading bad pricing for bad quality. Um, but they see 
I'm paying too much for this or I think I'm paying too much for this because I'm uneducated on what it actually costs to make this product. Now I'm making the business go chase, uh, chase itself to go restructure a whole manufacturing plan. And we would have said, let us get on the floor. Let us talk to the partners. Let us renegotiate the deal. Let us find out if that relationship is salvageable prior to making a move, right? But because we don't have the $5 million, they're going to go and do that. Um, that can kill a business. So I just kept getting these uh, stories over and over and over again. Then I started getting called into boardrooms all the time. And investors started listening to a lot of the advice that I was giving. As those investors started listening, they then started asking, hey, can you help us evaluate this next deal? All of a sudden in 2019, we were the diligence partner to 44 different VCs, PEs, family offices, and sovereign wealth funds. We were diligencing check sizes of a million dollars to 125 million. Um, that was the light bulb moment for me, that if we are building, scaling, de-risking companies and then diligencing them, and I had the founders' ears and the management team's trust, I was on the wrong freaking side of the table. Um, most of it was I wanted to change the interactions between investors and founders or investors and businesses. I thought that uh, it was unfairly weighted um, and we're not the perfect investor, right? Uh, no one is the perfect investor. I'm sure we have our own war stories or, or, you know, people who don't love what we've done in certain circumstances. And I completely respect that. But the vast majority of the time, we really, really try and do everything we can that is the correct thing for the business and to support the business in its growth and support the founder in the vision and direction that they had for the company. Um, I was fortunate. One of those 44 was a family office group. My co-founders, Brian and Stephen Finn, who are truly the best co-founders anybody could ever ask for. Uh, they had a family office. They were investing uh, uh, in deals that we were bringing them. And we were helping them diligence and evaluate it. And when I raised my hand about potentially thinking about getting involved in private equity, you know, the short story is the answer was not without us. We're going to do it together. Um, and, and, you know, we did. We went out and raised a $70 million fund very quickly uh, at the start of COVID and uh, are now on our $200 million growth equity fund too. Uh, and we have a, um, a food tech scout fund that is uh, self-funded, but, but does very small food tech uh, checks globally. What's been different from, from fund one to fund two? Fund two was uniquely formed in, um, in that one, it has 50 names in it. Way too big for a $70 million fund. We would never construct it like that traditionally. What happened was um, uh, almost 40 of those names came out of the family office. We, we, and their strategy was not to be a fund. It was to have full diversification across all food and beverage categories and make small bets in a variety of places, right? It was their own personal capital. When they decided that they wanted to pull it together to create a fund and bring in outside investors, we didn't want to hold certain things outside of that, which would be called cherry picking. And then if those things were successful, but we brought investors into a whole nother group of things that wasn't successful, we now look like assholes. Okay. So, uh, and I'm sure somebody could sue us for it. Um, so we put everything in, whether we, whether it was a, a $200,000 check or a million dollar check, whether we would have wanted to support it in a fund or not, we dumped it all in there. Um, and so that's not how we would construct a portfolio now or anytime in the future. Now we go very deep. We write very large checks. We will only have, you know, 12 to 15 companies in fund two. Uh, and so first, that strategy is different. Two, we had a lot of early stage businesses in fund one. We've moved upstream, uh, like a lot of investors who write larger checks. Uh, we're getting away from the risk, frankly, of very, very early stage. Uh, and we are wanting to get involved in businesses who've already proven some consumer concept to a degree. Um, three, we're scared of some categories now, um, just to be frank with you. Beverage, as an example, not on the top of our list. Uh, there's a handful of beverages in Fund 1. There's one real beverage, Ourobora, in Fund 2. 
Uh, mud water is a beverage, but it's a beverage without the water. It ships the powder. It's a totally different business. For me, it's not really a beverage uh, in a traditional sense. So, so I think, you know, there's a lot of learnings. And the fourth learning is if you don't want to deploy our team alongside of you in some way, shape or form, we're not the right investor because our unique value added advantage is our ability to help you de-risk your business. And so if that's not something you want, totally cool. But we're just not the right fit. No, that's really helpful, and that, that, that's um, and also just hearing about the evolution from like fund one to uh, to fund two. Why are you no longer um, besides, of course, Ourobora in in fund two? Why have you uh, stayed away from from beverage? There's a variety of reasons. One is highly competitive category. Two, it's been done in every which way, shape, or form that you can think of. Um, there's very little white space left. Three, think about how many units you need to you need to move if you're selling a one and a half, two and a half dollar, three dollar can or, or or bottle. That's a lot of units versus a ten dollar box of cereal. Um, three or four, the consumer has a lot of choices when they go into the grocery stores or or on you know some online shopping uh, channel. There's not a lot of brand loyalty left. Uh, except those really large beverage businesses, like, you know, there, there are several out there who made their way through an exit. I, I won't mention them because they're, they're in competition with some of ours, but, but they've secured that consumer uh, partnership and the consumer wants to continue buying them. Um, four uh, or five distributions a disaster, really, truly. Uh, unless you're DSDing your business, in my belief, I don't think you can really grow beverage massively. And DSD is a whole nother, that's like a very asset heavy scenario, similar to building a facility. You're just building a, a people force uh, to have to go everywhere. And I think lastly, the, the acquisition requirements now have increased so dramatically. Getting above a 40% margin in beverage is very hard. Getting to 150, 100 to 150 or 200 million dollars in revenue, which is the interest and profitable, very hard. Three, if you outgrow that, and we have one of them in our portfolio, you can go and look, I won't name it. But if you outgrow that size, you've now outgrown the consumer acquisition, the, the, the acquisition route, because now the acquirers don't know what to do with you. You've penetrated every channel. You have so much growth, right? You have, you, you have so much consumer uh, interest that they're like, how can I do any better than this? So what do I do? Um, so now that business has to get very, very profitable and likely sell to private equity uh, as a cash producing business. So there's just a variety of reasons. And then I think the last one is manufacturing is hard. Not a lot of line time. You have to negotiate your way to the premium partnerships. Uh, most of the small batch manufacturers are crappy. They don't produce good quality product and they cost too much. High volume line time is one expensive and two pretty much unexistent uh, or non-existent. Sorry. So, so, so you put all that stuff together. If you can't solve a lot of those issues, it's not of interest to us because we were operating Ourobora from virtually day one. We solved many of those issues as operators prior to looking at that company as an investment. So where where are if if you don't think there's there's right now and, and and I appreciate your your explanation about why you're why you're bearish on investing in emerging uh, beverage brands where do you feel like are the opportunities within within food? Um, I mean, if you look at our portfolio, you see some likely some outlandish founders uh, in a few ways, outspoken, using media in ways that are unique. Uh, whether it's celebrity platforms, whether it's creating your own celebrity in social media, you can probably think of three very well-known chocolate founders who do that. Um, and, and so, so one is like, how do you activate the consumer for really cheap? And if you've been able to get the consumer interested in not just the product, but in you as people or as founders, you now have a massive advantage. Um, I think the functional categories, meaning the enhancements, are very interesting. Uh, so Magic Spoon would be an example of that. It's a cereal. Everyone knows. And, and by the way, let me tell you City's investing philosophy for a second, which is 
we don't want the niche products per se. Although our portfolio from Fund One has some niche products in it, I want to specify that now we care about mass market scalability. We care about non-intimidating product profiles. I don't want to teach you how to use my product over and over again. I want you to know already how to do it. We don't have to tell you how to eat a chocolate bar. We don't have to tell you how to eat cereal or what cereal even is. You know how to use those in your life. We're just finding brands that have the ability to give a better advantage on the nutrition front or fill a functional category in it, uh, sorry, fill a functional set in that category uh, that a consumer is interested in. So Magic Spoon, high protein, low carbohydrate, but it's cereal. So people who don't want to fill their morning with carbohydrates or who want to end their evening with a high protein snack now have multiple usage occasions for cereal, right? That they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, so it's not category specific to us. It's does the consumer understand it? Can they build it into their life in a variety of ways? And is there a way to get consumers interested at a cost that is less than what the average brand is paying for those consumers? Then there's another subset. And we're not talking about food tech. Food tech's about 30% of what we do. Uh, we're just talking about CPG here. The other subset is um, uh, cuisine that most Americans don't know how to create for themselves. And so Mama Fuku would be an example of that, right? Imi as a ramen noodle would be an example of that. How do you experience these authentic flavor profiles of other cultures but are too afraid to take out a recipe book and, and, and literally go and buy 40 different ingredients that you're going to use one time uh, before you throw them away and create, you know, spend two hours creating a recipe that may not even turn out very well. I really do appreciate the breakdown. How I know that obviously the goal is to eventually have, you know, the products be mass produced and be available both in, you know, the natural channels and conventional channels. When you're diligent, diligent or, or talking with brands, because very few brands can kind of um, cross that chasm of going from natural to conventional. How do you think about it? When emerging food and beverage, and I'll, again, I'll, I want to specify, I am not a sales leader. And so I probably think about it totally wrong. Uh, and I acknowledge that. So anyone who wants to correct me is happy to. Natural was like an amazing thing when emerging food and beverage was starting. And everyone wanted to start at Whole Foods. And everyone wanted to get products and sprouts. And they couldn't get much outside of that because conventional grocery hadn't expanded to better for you or healthy foods yet. And so Whole Foods was the win, right? Today costs a lot of money to do business with Whole Foods. You can't really make money there. Um, the goal for us is conventional. I don't even love products starting in natural, to be honest with you. I think it's a hard barrier to break out of. I would be, and, and now that you have the Walmarts of the world, Costco's, Target's, you know, you name it, the really big players in club and conventional interested in bringing emerging brands on their floor, it's much easier to get involved in mainstream. And so mainstream's where the money's at. Let, let's not be wrong. That's where volume lives. Uh, you want to take a product to Air One? Sure, but it's a marketing expense that you're in Air One and it's like a flagship deal for the brand and you can say you're there. Same with Whole Foods. I look at Whole Foods as a marketing expense, right? It's great to say your product is in Whole Foods, not going to make the business. Um, and so, so we like conventional, we like club, we even like food service. We like anywhere the average American is consistently buying product. Uh, and I don't think they can afford to shop in Whole Foods on a daily basis. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, how also, because like, you know, we've seen um, to your original point in terms of how you think about white space or opportunity and on the distribution side, if you're able to kind of acquire customers or you have an edge on the distribution side, you're able to acquire customers for a lot cheaper because maybe there's already, you already have a following or you already have some level of, of, of influence, whether you build that yourself or whether it comes from, you know, other ways. We've seen a number, on, and, and in terms of like the other way side of that, we've seen like celebrities launch brands, right? Um, we, we've seen some be successful. We see some some not be successful. How do you kind of analyze if there is actually like a celebrity on board in a brand, whether you actually want to get involved with it or not? Authenticity 
first and foremost, I think um, every now and then you can pair a celebrity with a brand post-launch and have it be the perfect fit and have it feel very authentic to the consumer. But oftentimes the consumers aren't stupid, right? They know what this person has been passionate about for years. And now that we have social media and everything is like burned in everyone's brains for the, you know, for the test of time, basically, you know, if that person has cared about this or was passionate about this for a long, long time, you want to support people's passions and people's knowledge bases. Um, And so I think that's the first thing is like, is there an authentic story here? And is pairing this celebrity with these products actually adding something to the category? If it's not, you're just slapping a name on it. We got a problem. Look at Ryan Reynolds. He's one of the most successful storytellers of all time, in my opinion, in terms of the things that he's put his name on, what he gets behind and get involved in. He's not going to stick his name on a product that he doesn't truly, truly utilize in his daily life and is willing to scream at the top of the mountains for, right? Consumers feel that from him. David Chang, right? We got interested in Mama Fuku because David is a passionate dude who literally has a massive, massive following. Not because everybody can afford to eat at Mama Fuku's restaurants. They can't. There's not even a Mama Fuku in every single city around the country, right? Uh, maybe people go to New York City and visit visit, visit Noodle Bar uh, once, but like they're not loving David because they're paying money to Mama Fuku restaurants all the time. They're loving David because he's authentic and real and is going to tell you what, 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 what it's all about and desperately has a passion of delivering Asian-inspired cuisine to people who don't yet have not, have not yet experienced, you know, that, that level of flavor profile. The, the, I mean, those are, those are really great examples. I actually love David's podcast. I think he's uh, fantastic. Um, well, check out this week's cause I was just on it. Oh, awesome. 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 I will do. I will do. Um, so what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I'm going to use the same book. I was going to say uh, good to great on the per- on the professional side, but but that's actually not accurate. It did inspire me professionally, but the truth is Rich Dad, Poor Dad mm-hmm. uh, is the book that inspired me across the board. I have read that book a handful of times. My dad first gave it to me when I was 18, and I remember throwing it out my, my car door while I was driving down the road. Like, who the hell needs this? Why is my dad giving me this? I didn't even read it except the back of the book right? Um, I went and picked it up later in my 20s and it meant something to me. But, you know, every time I read it as my life advanced on the journey, it meant more and more. Um, Why is that fundamentally rooted in both my personal and professional growth? Because it gave me the first insight of someone being, being willing to kind of grab you by the collar through the book and say, wake up to the kind of life you want to have. If you want to control your own destiny, you got to go build it. It's not going to get built for you. And it's not going to get built for you running somebody else's destiny. If you want to run someone else's destiny and that's the life you want to have, totally cool. There's so many people in the world who are amazing workers and employees and spend their time in the middle of the day focused on their business and the rest of their time focused on their family or activities or hobbies, right? Then there's another subset of people who, who, want to start things, who are entrepreneurs, who have this like internal fire that that's what motivates them. That's what is um, 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 uh, kind of aspirational for them. I happen to fall in that category. And it was the first, um, it was really the first experience I ever had of being able to look at myself and say, I'm never going to have the life I want to have if I don't go and test these boundaries. And so that's why it shaped me personally and obviously professionally, I then had to create businesses that allowed me to do that. Amazing. Um, no, no, I mean, that's a phenomenal book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad also really enjoyed reading it and, um, good to great. We've had other people, um, mention as well, good to great and, and loving that book. So, uh, that's, that's great. That's awesome. What is maybe one suggestion or piece of advice, shared learning, um, that you have for founders? That's a broad question because there's a lot of a lot of pockets I can give there. Um, 
Really, I think no matter what you're looking to do, whether it's fundraise, whether it's make a new product line, whether it's start a company um, or anything in between, I have found that there's a, a commonality with a lot of founders, not the very top tier, by the way, the top tier do what I'm about to suggest, but a lot of founders who go and ask a hundred people their opinion on something and they get a hundred different answers. And it spins them in circles, really similarly to what we shared at the beginning of this, which was like, you have the consumer tell you it's too salty. And so you immediately try and go back and, and try to formulate, right? Everyone giving you a, a, an opinion is coming from a certain place in their life. So it's a biased opinion based on their own experience. So the best advice I'm able to give people, especially in hard times, is get a network, but the network doesn't have to be the same for every topic. So don't go ask more than five people their opinion on something. But if you want it on fundraising, go find the founders who raised the most successful rounds. Go find the investors who have funded the businesses that you want to become. Go find people who you want to emulate. And those are the five people that you ask about fundraising. Don't ask anybody else, right? Now you have employee problems. You probably don't go and ask those five people who've just gone on successful fundraising journeys. You go and ask the five leaders who've been dubbed some of the best CEOs in town. You go and ask the people folks want to always work for. You go and ask the people who, you know, someone's always talking about and saying, hey, did you talk to so-and-so? They always have, you know, great advice. I'd love to be part of their community. Those are the people you ask about that. So, so make your network of folks that you are sourcing information of select, literally, you know, procure it per, per topic and don't go and ask, you know, this huge community because you're going to spin yourself in circles. Cool. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. I, I know I talk a lot. Thanks for giving me that platform. I couldn't shut up. So really appreciate the, the insightful questions. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Melissa. Melissa, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So what do you feel like, you know, maybe only the SPV side of things and also on the emerging managers um, side, what do you think that they maybe struggle or, or, or have or have like a hard time with? Yeah, so I think with the angel side, um, you know, a lot of a lot of angels will be investing directly, um, and you know some are unfamiliar with the concept of an SPV. Um, you know, syndicating is a concept that's used in the financial markets. Whether you know your banks syndicating loans or banks syndicating investments, um, it's a really it's a really good way to you know share your network, uh, deal flow with your network. Um, you know get into those really competitive deals by having those higher minimum tickets, pulling those funds together. Um, so I think, you know, for angels, the concept of SPVs and syndicating is relatively still new. And, you know, there's a, a large market where uh, I think they would significantly benefit. Uh, you're a able to also monetize off that deal flow as well. So you can charge carry, which is, you know, a, a portion of the profits upon an exit scenario, or you can charge fees. So, you know, Finding an opportunity, trying to fundraise for the deal is a lot of hard work and sometimes being compensated for that um, does definitely help um, incentivize uh, the deal. For emerging fund managers, it's a really great way to start building your track record. So, you know, when, when you're talking to LPs or, you know, investors, one of their strategies is, you know, um, how do I get some co-investment opportunities uh, or direct investments? And so building that relationship, showing your deal flow um, allows you to build those relationships with those LPs to ultimately invest into your funds. Um, additionally, it's a really good way to kind of show, you know, your track record of, you know, the companies that you've invested or the ability to fundraise, getting access to those top deals, and then going out to the market and, you know, showing a track record of, you know, your resume. Um, so, it definitely paints a better picture than, you know, saying, you know, one day I want to be a VC fund manager and not having anything to back it up with. I appreciate that. Yeah. And and for anyone that's listening that doesn't quite understand what an SPV is, how I, how I think about it as well is that you're almost raising a VC fund, but on like one deal. 
Um, so you're raising from other people, but it's just solely on one deal. So you get like a, maybe an allocation from a company. Um, let's say it's like a 200k allocation. Maybe you put up 20k in that 200k allocation, and then it's your job to go out and uh, and to actually fulfill um, the rest of the round with other investors. And then, um, as Gabriel said, you can uh, charge. Um, uh, carry from it so that's like a percentage of the profits so that typically is around like 20 percent. is that roughly right yeah that's exactly right so uh spvs or special purpose vehicle is a legal entity that's incorporated um and venture it's predominantly used to pool funds together invest into a single asset or company um and with that you have the functionalities of commercializing some of that um the, the legal entity. So, you know, as you mentioned, earning some carry, earning some upfront fees, uh, and really compensating your hard work for, you know, fundraising. Again, if you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to the Consumer VC newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the deals that are happening. Thanks for listening.